welcome to episode 8 of Unofficial Translation, where two 20-somethings talk about something. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about probably our most broad topic. I, I think, I, I hope you agree. Um, yeah, by far. And it's the Canadian healthcare system. To Canadians, the notion that access to healthcare should be based on need, not the ability to pay, is a defining national value. It's something that we're proud of. This value survives despite a shared border with the United States, which has the most expensive and inequitable healthcare system in the developed world. That might be controversial to you Americans listening, but it's the truth. I mean, it is the truth. And the thing is, that doesn't mean that the American system is worse. We're going to get into conversations about what model of healthcare serves the most people. But as we discuss healthcare in Canada, we wanted to talk about the general rules of our healthcare system. It's strong points and its flaws, how other systems are worse, and how other systems can be better. What we unfortunately don't have time to discuss, which is incredibly prevalent in Canadian healthcare, is how the Canadian healthcare system has historically and continues to disregard the Indigenous population and their startlingly worse health outcomes in this country. This topic of Indigenous communities in Canada being disregarded by our health system deserves to be respected as own discussions. And we hope to do this in the future after we really do our research here, talk to people that are involved in this sort of field and have a better understanding to make sure that we're doing it justice. In the meantime, we'll leave some links in the bio of this podcast with some more information on how the Canadian government has failed these native communities from a healthcare perspective. And just stay tuned for a, a podcast, perhaps in season two about this topic. Yeah. But for this, I think it's episode eight. In this episode, we're going to be breaking down the Canadian healthcare system. As I've said, diving into what it covers, the governmental spending, the history, and the Canadian Healthcare Act of 1984, which essentially describes most of the fundamental aspects of today's system. And all of this before diving into our patented and unpatented main question of how the Canadian healthcare system can be improved comparing and contrasting between different healthcare systems around the world and some of the ethical implications of employing these systems. So thanks for listening and enjoy. In the wild, there is no healthcare. In the wild, healthcare is, ow, I hurt my leg. I can't run. A lion eats me and I'm dead. Well, I'm not dead. I'm the lion. You're dead. So when we say the Canadian healthcare system, that could be confusing. To many Canadians, it's the only healthcare system they know. But this system is unique, very unique. And we're going to take this time to break down how this Canadian healthcare system, what we're going to say, we're going to say CHA for the Canadian Healthcare Act and CHC for the system in general. Uh, we're going to break down how this system functions. So, I mean, to start us off, healthcare in Canada is delivered through the provincial and territorial systems of publicly funded healthcare. And I think that's the big distinction between our system and a lot of systems around the world. And this is informally called Medicare. It is guided by the provisions of the Canada Health Act, or the CHA, as Hattie just mentioned. And this was drafted in 1984. And this is universal across Canada. The Act sets out the primary objective of Canadian healthcare policy, which is to un quote unquote, 
protect, promote, and restore the physical and mental well-being of residents of Canada and to facilitate reasonable access to health services without financial or other barriers. So that is one statement that sort of encompasses it, but the CHA establishes criteria and conditions related to insured health services and extended health care services that the provinces and territories must fulfill to receive full federal cash contribution. So the aim of this CHA is to ensure that all eligible residents of Canada have reasonable access to health services on a prepaid basis. So there's no direct charges at the point of service for such services, AKA you're never gonna get a bill. Well, that, that's that's what it is in theory. In practice, as we're gonna talk about in the future, it doesn't guess, cover all it, services. It doesn't cover everything. But as we mentioned, this is this is a publicly funded healthcare system. And it's a source of national pride. I mean, I always use this uh, example with you. For example, you're having this little debate, debate. America or Canada, which is better. Exactly. And it always comes down to, hey, we got free healthcare. And yeah. and that, that's something that us Canadians are very prideful for. It provides relatively equitable access to physician and hospital services through 13 provincial and territorial tax-funded public insurance plans. And you should be able to move between different provinces and territories and still receive access to healthcare as long as you're covered as a citizen or PR. Exactly. So as I said earlier, the Canadian healthcare system is slightly different from other public socialized medicines in other countries around the world. So one way that we're different is that Canadian doctors aren't actually public in the sense that they're set up as a corporation. So it's almost like a business in the sense where uh, the government is a client. So if a doctor is set up as a corporation, they have one client and that client is the government. As opposed to, for example, the patient being the client. Exactly, in a private system or there being a cap where all doctors would make the same in a fully public system, mm -hmm. right? In this sense, there is still a sense of capitalism because the more you work, the more money you make. So there is a variance in pay. Um, but there is still a cap that exists in our current system. But I guess the main difference would be it, because it's set up as a corporation, you have different tax laws that apply. You have a uh, different ability to make more money through referrals or extra, uh, I guess, appointments. That's why many doctors will be set up as a corporation. And that's not just surgeons, but also uh, general practitioners all across Canada. Okay, interesting. So, I mean, let, let's, let's break this down quickly before we move on. I mean, let's, I, I'm an, for, for those of you that don't know, I'm an aspiring physician. I want to go into medicine. And let's fast forward a few years um, at my pace, maybe 20, where I'm finally, <laughs> no, no, where I'm finally a physician. I graduated, I finished my residency. I want to start my practice. Can you take me through that? So from, from at least from a, from this, this, this setting up a corporation point of view, I just want to understand that. So essentially, um, as a, I'm gonna just assume general practitioner, I know that's not the route you wanna go, but this is the simplest example. Uh, you're gonna set up a company under the practice. The, the address will be where you work and the corporation name will be probably your name corporation. Doctor, your name corporation. Um, you're going to bill to OHIP, because we're in Ontario, um, all the times you, you have appointments with your patients and they're going to pay you for it and uh, your employees are gonna be uh, taxed as if they're employees under a corporation. 
which is the secretaries, perhaps. I don't know if you'd have a nurse in the personal practice. Probably not, because nurses usually work in hospital settings or in other uh, systems like that. So it would mostly be just sort of secretarial services. Um, other than that, your expenses, like your gas, for example, could be write-offs. I mean, you get to experience life as a corporate entity. Interesting, even if I am the sole employee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it is different in that sense. Again, you can work more and get more money, but you also have the freedom to work less and make less money. So it's really up to you. And doctors in Canada, unlike in certain public systems, make good money. <laughs> so uh, it's usually um, for physicians specifically, that ends up being very, you know, uh, lucrative having this kind of system compared to a public system, not as lucrative as a private system, except in cases where you don't have clientele. Now, when I said that we're a universal a socialized system, you mentioned that not exactly. That not exactly is due to the insurance mm -hmm. of what is actually covered. So um, let's talk about that a bit. Yeah, so I mean... What's covered, what's not covered? Well, let's break it down. Universal access to publicly funded health services is often considered by Canadians as a quote unquote, fundamental value that ensures national health care insurance for everyone wherever they live in the country. Now, Canadian Medicare provides coverage for approximately 70% of Canadian health care needs, not 100%. And the remaining 30% is paid for through the private sector. The 30% typically relates to services not covered or only partially covered by Medicare, such as some cosmetic procedures, prescription drugs, uh, dentistry, optometry, aka if you're like me and need glasses, unfortunately this is something I have to pay for unless I have insurance. Now approximately 65 to 75% of Canadians have some form of supplementary health insurance related to the aforementioned reasons. Many of us really receive this through our employers or use secondary social service programs related to extended coverage for families, receiving social assistance or um, vulnerable uh, demographics, for example, have other social programs available to them, such as uh, seniors, uh, minors, and those with uh, disabilities. Now, in order to put Canada's healthcare spending in perspective, we wanted to highlight first how Canada compares to other first world countries. So as of 2019, and this will be the first week that I am the stat man, well, I guess just for this part, <laughs> Canada spends about 10 uh, and a half percent of its GDP on healthcare. So that's a huge number, which equates to about $6,500 per person, where 70% of government spending is in the public sphere and 30% is in the private sphere. Now, private sphere, as you have mentioned, is things like optometrists, um, par partial dentistry, uh, physiotherapists partially, and then almost fully chiropractors and massage therapists and naturopaths, naturopath, other alternative medicine. Um, but majority of the public component comes from provincial and territorial governments, so not federal. And this spending has been fairly consistent since the early 2000s. And if we take a look at our friends south of the border, the United States spends about 17% of its GDP on health. And it's a much larger GDP much larger GDP and a much higher percentage. And this accounts for, if you, if you break this down, this is about 11,000 USD per person. But this is split almost directly down the middle with 49% of, of, of the 17% of its GDP spent on healthcare being spent in the public sphere and 51% being spent in the private sphere. 
Now, most other first world countries follow a model closer to that of us Canadians. For example, France, Germany, Sweden, the Dutch, they spend close to the same amount per person on healthcare as us. With healthcare systems that are mostly publicly funded, I think uh, the stats show that almost, or sorry, more than 80% of their healthcare um, system is publicly funded. Countries like Australia, New Zealand, and the UK are very similar to us, uh, somewhere between 70 and 80%. But as you can see, many of the other first world nations other than the United States are primarily publicly funded in terms of their their healthcare coverage. And see, I find that uh, like particularly interesting because the U.S. is known as like the private like healthcare country, mm-hmm. you know, where like people go bankrupt trying to pay for, I don't know, cancer treatment and things like that. And if you don't have enough money or insurance, then you just get refused treatment in some states. But it's really interesting to see that they actually spend, uh, the almost, government spends almost double, almost double on healthcare and actually 50% is public. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into why that is later on. But bringing it back to Canada's, and I just wanted to say that as something that was sort of interesting for me. But bringing that back to Canada's healthcare spending, last year, for the year of uh, 2019, about 26% of health spending was on hospitals, 15% was on drugs, and another 15% on physician services. Now these numbers are growing, likely as demand for healthcare increases, as our population ages. And our aging population is becoming a concern with our healthcare spending now, especially since our population is continuing to grow. So now that you know a little bit about how, I guess, our Canadian healthcare system works, our spending, what's covered and what's not covered, let's go dive a little bit into the conception of um, how we came to have the system that we have. So as we know, um, 1984 is the year when the Canadian Healthcare Act was produced. And since then, healthcare hasn't actually changed too much. But there were many events that led to the finalization of our socialized healthcare system. The words health and healthcare were nowhere to be found in the original Canadian Constitution of 1867. I mean, it was a completely different time. Well, what were doctors doing in 1867? I have no idea. They, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, did you like like back back in the day, doctors were doing some pretty yeah. crazy things. Some, I mean, have you heard of bloodletting? What's bloodletting? Um, it's oh, what, maybe I know it. Yeah, Explain it to me. Bloodletting is uh, back in. The, I don't know if this was 1867. This might have been way before, but. This was uh, back in the day where if you had, for example, some sort of disease, what they would do is they would, you'd go to a barber who would actually be the doctor. So I think we're maybe even talking medieval times here. And they would attach leeches to you and basically suck the pathogen out of you. Or they would basically cut you the barber's blade and essentially you'd bleed out the, the, path, the pathogen. I mean, there's some other crazy healthcare practices that they used to do back in the day. And they did up until uh, even the 50s and 60s, like lobotomies, basically chopping out a piece of your brain, or um, something that they used to do even before that was trepanning, where they would literally drill a hole into your head because if you had a mental disorder, you would. the, the idea was if they drilled into your head, the demons could get out through the hole. Anyways, they used to do some crazy things back in the day. But coming back to healthcare in Canada as we know it, back in 1867, there, there was no health and healthcare in the Constitution. But provincial governments were given explicit authority over hospitals in the, Constitution, in the constitutional division of powers, 
between the federal government and the provinces and territories. And I guess this is because the federal government didn't want to be responsible for healthcare. They had enough on their plate bringing this country together, which at the time was quite divided. Uh, it was like Upper Canada, Lower Canada, British, French. I mean, all these types of different powers. Manifest Destiny was still going on in the mm -hmm. U.S. Basically wanted to take over. So uh, I can imagine um, that going. And actually, quickly, I just looked up a little bit about bloodletting. It was used all the way through the 19th and 20th century. It's not giving me a exact year, but... Um, Pretty insane practice. As late as the 1940s. Yep. The 40s. Yeah, so you go to your doctor and you're <laughs> sick and they're going to basically cut into your arm or your leg or wherever it is and hope you bleed the sickness out. Yeah. And, wow. And, and instead, you'd probably get an infection and die of sepsis. Hey. That's, that was the 1940s, apparently. Yeah. Um, another fact, before I just jump into it, just because I remember it, is the guy who, um, one of the biggest innovators in medicine, I forgot his name, but he um, basically would dip his medical instruments mm -hmm. in holy water. And he would do that in order to have it get blessed by God. But what he was actually doing was sanitizing the medical instruments pre and post surgery. So it ended up actually saving many many lives and they thought it was a blessing from god but in reality they were just getting rid of bacteria mm -hmm. so going back um it, the culmination or i guess the the beginning of of healthcare uh that's was sort of a version of public healthcare in canada was in the early 1900s a boy by the name of thomas clement douglas tommy douglas for short who was a young boy growing up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He nearly lost a limb to osteomyelitis. Myelitis? I, I pronounce it myelitis. Every, myelitis. Everyone pronounces things differently. <laughs> uh, because his family was unable to pay for care. But when Douglas later became the social democratic premier of Saskatchewan, he implemented universal public health insurance for the province, making it the first jurisdiction with universal health coverage in North America. Now, the insurance initially covered hospital care in 1947. It was expanded to medical care, which was mainly defined as physician services in 1962. Services were resourced by a provincial tax finance plan. You get the theme here, the provincial government mediating these, these processes. Hospitals and physicians maintained a high degree of autonomy at the time, and they built the public plan while designing their own models of care. Now, by 1961, all 10 provinces now participated in the Hospital Insurance and Diagnostic Services Act. Now, I just do think that Tommy Douglas was such a G because <laughs> he experienced, honestly, like he personally experienced uh, disparity based on his, uh, not, his inability to pay or his family's inability to pay. And he was like, this isn't right. This is a human right. And I truly believe that too. Absolutely. So when he was able to make a difference, he did. And that's something, I mean, I- That's commendable. Yeah, it's commendable. I don't know how Tommy Douglas was outside of this, so I don't want to say he was a good person, but that's a commendable thing to do. And honestly, that was the spark that lit the flame that was our Canadian healthcare system. Now, by 1965, the federal government played a part in the emergence of universal health coverage. Now, during that period, through their spending power, which it used and continues to use, uh, maintaining national standards for universal health coverage. So the Saskatchewan approach was then adopted in the rest of the country through the encouragement of the federal government, which originally offered 50 cents for every provincial dollar spent on universal health coverage. So there was a back funding by the federal government to the provinces. Now, moving a bit more forward, 
uh, to the mid-1970s, until the enactment of the Canadian Healthcare Act of 1984, Pierre Elliott Trudeau ended up, um, you know, our current prime minister's dad, was really a big pusher to have this system get to where it was in 1984. So the Canadian Healthcare Act, implemented in 1984, as you mentioned, has five key pillars. The first one is portability. So what this means is insured residents moving from one province or territory to another must continue to be covered for insured health services. So for example, say tomorrow I decide to move to the Northwest Territories, I should not have a break in health coverage if I get sick tomorrow. I shouldn't have to apply for health coverage in Northwest Territories to receive it. I should be given into it because I'm a Canadian citizen. For sure. And that makes total sense. The country is one whole. The second uh, pillar is universality. So all insured residents must be entitled to the health services on uniform terms and conditions, regardless of race, regardless of income, regardless of background, regardless of religion, creed, orientation, anything, you should be able to receive healthcare just the same. The third is accessibility. And this, this, this goes without saying, reasonable access to all Canadians for insured health services is what accessibility means. Yeah, so there needs to be a hospital close by. It can't be 45 miles away. And, and this is, this is although these are fundamental pillars that I guess are important in the Canada Health Act, it doesn't necessarily mean they're upheld, but these are things that we're, that we're supposed to strive towards. I mean, we know that across the country, not everyone has equal access yeah. to health services. For example, um, at St. Michael's Hospital, we get plenty of patients that come for cardiac surgery from Sault Ste. Marie because there's no other place nearby that can do cardiac surgery. Yeah, so that's specialized within that as well as if we go to accessibility, we can start talking about like how long people have to wait in some regions compared to others. Don't worry, that's coming. <laughs> it is coming. But moving on to number four, comprehensiveness. Plans must cover all insured health services provided by hospitals and physicians. So if it's at a hospital and it's provided by a doctor at a hospital, it's covered. You're not going to have to pay. Finally, the last pillar is public administration. Plans must be administered and operated on a non-profit basis by a public authority. Of course, any healthcare practitioner, nurse, anybody employed in the healthcare field is making a profit because they're working. That's their job. But at the same time, there's no, you can't upmark your ser physician services because you operate on Bloor Street in Yorkville. Exactly. And that's a key thing. And all of this sort of culminated to our current healthcare system. So there are how many sovereign nations in the world? About 195 according to the UN census. That was and a good guess. Yes. <laughs> I looked that up, but that's all right. So there's 195 sovereign nations and probably just as many different healthcare systems. But T.R. Reid back in 2010 published a book called The Healing of America where he classified all the different healthcare systems in the world into four main categories. So these models uh, are different. Uh, Canada falls into it. America falls into a few of them. It's interesting. We're going to talk about that. But let's get into each of these models and have a bit of an ethical look at them as well, where they fail and why they're good. So the first model is the beverage model, not like a drink. It's spelled a bit differently, like beverage. So in this system, healthcare is provided and financed by the government through tax payments. 
just like the police or the public library. So this is almost completely social. Many but not all hospitals and clinics are owned by the government. Some do doctors are government employees, but there are also private doctors who collect fees from the government, similar to Canada in a sense. In Britain, which is one of the places that uses this model, you never get a doctor bill. These systems tend to have low costs per capita because the government as the sole payer controls what doctors can do and what they can charge. So countries that use the beverage plan or variations on it include the birthplace, Great Britain, Spain, most of Scandinavia, and New Zealand. Wow, Hattie, this sounds like an amazing model. Why doesn't everyone use it? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's because of the long wait times to receive healthcare. I mean, at least that's, that's, that's a big aspect of it, timeliness. And this is, a, this is gonna be a reoccurring theme for, for the rest of our chat. Because everyone is guaranteed healthcare, the shortage of professional personnel and the overutilization of the system leads to long wait times for patients. It's inevitable. If everyone has access, which is which is great, which is it's a, it's a universal right as right. We, as we discussed. You 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 need it's supply and demand. If if the supply of healthcare professionals and resources and all that sort of stuff doesn't match the demand, aka serving the whole population, which unfortunately in healthcare usually never yeah. intersect, especially when an inefficient system like government is the one supplying that funding. Unfortunately, I mean, this, this is, this may not, I mean, in, in a lot of contexts, this, this creates problems, even though it tries to provide solutions. Now, going into the second model, Bismarck model, this system of providing healthcare probably looks pretty similar to Americans. It uses an insurance system. The insurers are called quote unquote sickness funds, and they're usually financed jointly by employers and employees through payroll deduction. So you get your, your payroll at the end of the year and let's say part of that is siphoned off to go towards this sickness fund. Unlike the US insurance industry though, Bismarck type health insurance plans have to cover everyone, or at least that's what they intend to, and they don't intend to make a profit. Doctors and hospitals tend to be private in Bismarck countries, such as Japan, which has more private hospitals than the United States, but although this is a multi-payer model, where, for example, Germany has about 240 different funds, tight regulation gives the government much of the cost control clout than the single-payer beverage provides. The Bismarck model is found in, it was founded in Germany, of course, and, for, oh, sorry, it's, it's found in Germany, and France, and Belgium, the Netherlands, Japan, Switzerland, and to a degree in, in some Latin American countries. So, since uh, a bit of an issue about the Bismarck model, is uh, the core finances are contributions. So that means people in poverty can't pay and get limited coverage. And the, the, I'm assuming this is because your employer isn't, isn't, isn't covering it. Yeah, and that insurance costs per month or whatever, you can't really pay yourself either. So um, places like Switzerland, the cost of insurance is high because of this, and it continues to grow, leading part of the population to be unfortunately underinsured. So that, is a pretty tough one because you need everybody to be covered, or at least you want everyone to be covered, especially if you're from that country, you should want everyone there to receive healthcare. So, so I'd imagine this, 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 this model is most successful in countries with very strong economies and very low, low unemployment, low, very low unemployment. Exactly. Um, so moving on to the third model, a model that Canadians should find very familiar because this is the model we use. It's the National Health Insurance Model. 
So this element, uh, this system has elements of both the beverage and the Bismarck. It uses private sector providers, but payment comes from a government-run insurance program that every citizen pays into. AKA tax. Tax, OHIP, etc. Since there's no need for marketing, no financial motive to deny claims, and no profit, these universal insurance programs tend to be cheaper and much simpler administratively than American-style for-profit insurance. In theory. In theory. Now, the single payer tends to have considerable market power to negotiate for lower prices. So our system, for example, has negotiated low prices for from pharmaceutical companies that Americans have spurned their own drug stores to buy pills north of the border. Now, national health insurance plans also control costs by limiting the medical services they will pay for or by, ma by making patients wait to be treated, which is unfortunate, but this system is found in Canada, but other places like Taiwan and South Korea have also developed uh, or adopted this model. And, and then one of the big criticisms of this is, is we see this in, in Canadian emergency rooms all the time. And this is the diminished quality of care just as a result of once again, this little buzzword I'm going to be using a little bit, timeliness. And I, I think there's a statistic, uh, July 2019. Um, average wait time. Average wait time across Canada. I think it was something absurd. I, if I recall correctly. It's 16 hours? 16. I think it was like, I, the number that's sticking to my head is like 16.3 hours. That's absurd. That's crazy like that that's like you could be in the emergency room with like a needle in your eye yeah it's almost like if you if you got hurt but not hurt enough to have an ambulance bring you in you might as well hurt yourself a bit more yeah and call an ambulance and hopefully like get shuttled directly into <laughs> exactly you don't have to wait and emerge yeah now the final i guess model that um tr reed defined in his book was the out-of-pocket model now only the developed industrialized countries so these perhaps 40 of the world's 195 countries have established healthcare systems. Most of the nations on the planet are too poor and too disorganized to provide any kind of mass medical care, AKA any of the three monocles, monocles, wow, Mon models we just discussed. The basic rule in such countries is that the rich get medical care and the poor stay sick or die, unfortunately. Now, this, you can see this in rural regions of Africa, India, China, and South America where hundreds of million people, hundreds of millions of people go their whole lives without ever seeing a doctor. I think that number is way lower. I mean, way too low. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this probably covers billions of people that's in today's day and age. Yeah. And, and they go their whole lives without ever seeing a doctor receiving healthcare. They may have access though to a village healer who uses home road remedies that may or may not be effective against disease. And this is just a product of their circumstances, unfortunately. In the poor world, patients can sometimes scratch together enough money to pay a doctor bill. Otherwise, they pay in potatoes or goat's milk or childcare for whatever else they may have to give. If they have nothing, they don't get medical care. And this is this is fueling even, for example, the the illegal organ harvesting trade that's 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 prevalent around the world. I mean, I've, I remember seeing a Vice documentary not a couple years ago that that discusses this uh, and, and i think it took place in india at least the documentary showcased this organ harvesting trade where it's like can you imagine it's My like a, a family member of yours is sick so in order to compensate and for me to pay for their medical bills i have to compromise my own health care by donating a kidney yeah. to, in order to cover the kidney transplant of my family member, that's insane, yeah. that's absurd, but this is the reality, this is a harsh reality of 
some countries around the world. And, and I guess this is what's kind of constituting this out-of-pocket model. And we see this also in the United States. Sorry, I'm going on this tangent. No, this for is, sure. It's really, mean, it's really upsets me that so many people around the world have to face this. Yeah, it's justified to be passionate about this because of the models we've mentioned, it is clear that the out-of-pocket model is the most unethical and should be eradicated. However, it's tough to do. Uh, but what we're going to try to do for now is try to compare our model in Canada to the model that is always compared to us, the American model. Now, the four models that we mentioned should be easy for Americans to understand because they have elements of all of them in their fragmented national healthcare apparatus. So when it comes to treating veterans, they use the beverage model. But if you're an American over the age of 65, you're on Medi Medicare, uh, AKA the national health insurance model. And if you're a working American, which is most Americans, I mean, not right now during COVID, but usually most Americans, um, you get insurance on the job and you'd be under the Bismarck model. Now, 15% of Americans who have no health insurance, the United States uses the out-of-pocket model with access to a doctor available if you can pay the bill out of pocket at the time of treatment or if you're sick enough to be admitted to the emergency ward at the public hospital. Wow. Now, like, like, like you said, if we look at the America's model, if you have public insurance, there are so many people covered under public insurance. So the government, like in Canada, will go to the hospitals, go to the drug companies and try and negotiate the cheapest price for that service. Okay, now let's say you fall under the, I believe it was 51% that um, are under private. under private insurance. Now, let's say you have insurance with Ehab's insurance company. So Ehab's insurance company, aka me, I'm gonna go to these hospitals and negotiate on your behalf for a better price for services. Now, there's way less people insured under Ehab's insurance than the public system because there's so many insurance companies, so many competition. But at least by having this private insurance with me, the service, although it might be more expensive than if you were publicly covered by Medicare, you're at least covered. And that, 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 that's huge. Now, if we look at those who are uninsured, people that unfortunately have to... Yeah, 15%. 15% that are under the um, out-of-pocket model. Unfortunately, these people, there's statistics that show that they pay for about they pay about four times as much for any service than their publicly covered or insured counterparts. And this is simply because if you are going to receive a service, who is vouching for you? I'm not vouching for you with my insurance company. Donald Trump or future Joe Biden or in the past, any other president was not vouching for you for if you're publicly covered, you're essentially going in and paying full retail, no yeah. subsidization, no discounts you're paying for that full open heart surgery yeah you have nobody there to back you meanwhile in canada the fees are standardized and set an angioplasty for example in ontario will always cost the same i mean not considering the future or the past but anywhere at the same time in canada should cost the same and that's because the government as a sole payer has taken on the burden of negotiating the lowest possible price for all stakeholders to be happy. So even if you have private insurance in Ontario, the insurance company bills the same amount that OHIP bills for the same service. AKA unlike Americans where there are multiple prices for the same procedure, depending on how you're paying, how, how you're paying. 
Here in Canada and in other countries like Germany, for example, private insurance or not, the menu is the same. Unfortunately, in a privatized system like in the United States, this isn't universally the case where you have different menus with the same services, but a slew of different prices. What we are most concerned about is the waiting times for health services in Canada. But at least you'll almost never hear of a Canadian declaring bankruptcy because they can't pay their medical bills. Mic drop. Mic drop for real. Now, um, we've compared to the US and we start to understand the four different models that represent all of the world's healthcare coverage. But let's get into our main question. Could Canadian could the Canadian healthcare system be improved? And if it could, which it can, how can we do that? So we got to first understand the constraints that the healthcare system faces. So there are four, um, three main ones, and then four like major ones. Like uh, the fourth is a major one, the most major one that we're going to really uh, push on in this last section. So fiscal constraints, population aging, and the social determinants of health are three. The fourth is wait times, which we've brought up a couple times already. Now let's go through each one. For fiscal constraints, income, housing, level of education, job opportunities, discrimination. These are all things that when some groups face, uh, these are barriers that stops them from receiving treatment. This is inequity. And, and these this ties back into the, the social determinants of health that we've mentioned. Um, like you said, lower education, um, lower employment, or decreased opportunities for employment, where, for example, instead of having your employer cover you, you're instead forced to take this cash job with no benefits, for example. And at the end of the day, income, I mean, I, me and you have had plenty of discussions about redlining yeah, and how that changes your access to healthcare and to education and, and even, even just like real estate prices, all, all these sorts of things of where you go to school. Yeah. These, are, these are all issues that, that do actually impact health. These are the social determinants of health. Like if you are more stressed and because you have less of an income, you might be more stressed. You might have worse mental health. You have a higher likelihood to have diabetes. And in general, you would lead a shorter life on average. Now that is the social determinant of health. We uh, have, why don't you go into population aging? So we know that our generation or our, our population is aging. And this added constraint of an aging population means that there are more people moving through the healthcare system to receive services. Luckily, due to amazing medical innovations and our improved understanding of diseases and treatment options, we're living longer as a whole. And that's an incredibly fantastic thing. I am very happy for that. Now, inevitably, this means that with the same spending and the same level of resources, the healthcare system may become, I don't know why I said may become restricted. It will become restricted as costs will also increase as a result of inflation and all these sorts of uh, business ideas that I'll leave to you to discuss at another time. The, these, I mean, costs increase regardless of if our population is aging or not, but our population is aging and costs are increasing. And we, it's, it's not like the government just has all this money that they can throw more and more and more at healthcare. Yeah. So this is this is just creates this this I guess this vacuum where yeah. 
we need to find some sort of solution to have to pay for people who aren't working, but in the meantime, also pay for people who are working. So a simple uh, answer someone might say is maybe switch to a semi-private model where people who have jobs play through insurance programs and uh, the aging population who are retired uh, have the uh, their health care provided by um, the government. Now, that's tough because there's a lot of inequities that can exist. But we know that Canada can perform poorly in these ways. So what are the areas in which we can't perform well and how can we improve? Now, we're not doctors, but there is a doctor by the name of David Erbach. So Dr. David Erbach is a general uh, professional, pr professor of general surgery. Um, he uh, teaches at the University of Toronto, uh, Timurdi School of Medicine. He also practices at Women's College Hospital. And he's very interested, aside from his clinical interest, he's very interested in health services research and understanding kind of the shortcomings of our healthcare system here in Canada and how to improve it. Now, he had an idea and many ideas about fixing some of the, the issues that he saw in the Canadian healthcare system. Now, one of his issues was, uh, remember that accessibility pillar of the Canadian Healthcare Act? And we said that in practice, it didn't really end up working out. Well, one problem is that access to health uh, to health services isn't actually that great. Timeliness, for example, that we've mentioned earlier, where there are long waits before elective surgery and even longer waits to visit surgical specialists or, or be in the emergency room to see someone for your specific issue um, becomes increasingly, increasingly uh, desperate within communities all around Canada. Absolutely. So... What could be some of the solutions and what are some of the solutions that Dr. David Erbach suggested? So the first one that he mentioned was managing public expectations. Now, it's common knowledge now that if you're going to the emergency room, unless you are actively dying and um, that, that's been, you, you've been classified through triage as somebody that needs emergent, uh, like, emergency, treatment. like yeah. emergency treatment, like you need to be seen immediately, chances are you're going to have to wait. But we can manage public, or by we, I mean, the public health sphere can manage public expectations by using things like wait time trackers. Now, just reporting wait times at different emergency rooms doesn't necessarily shorten the wait times. But it is a metric that um, administrators can use to kind of monitor improvements in healthcare, monitor um, increases or decreases in utilization. Yeah, we can get real data from having the ability to understand our wait times more efficiently and effectively. Now, you're right, that doesn't actually eliminate wait times, but we there are other ways. For example, another suggestion was reducing inappropriate surgery and care. Not everyone with poor eyesight would benefit from cataract surgery, but many people are getting cataract surgery anywho. Not every person with frozen shoulder needs a full shorter, uh, shoulder arthroscopy surgery, right? Atheroscopic surgery. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but we do it a lot anyway. Sometimes a cortisol or a PRP shot can provide the same results. So why are we always doing it? We need to find a way to provide care as needed on a by-need basis. Mm -hmm. Now, another possible solution is something called the single, single entry model. And this is basically a model that's meant to coordinate or better coordinate surgical care. So the idea is you don't need to have a GP directly identify a surgeon. Now, uh, that would be something like bringing all new referrals through a central intake 
and within the same pool where they just see the next available specialist. Now, this is something that uh, any of us could see in a bank. For example, you just see the next available teller. So if there are four or five tellers in a line in a bank, you don't, surgeons. See, yeah, you don't see a line at each surgeon or teller at a bank. You see one central line as and as space opens, a teller asks for another person to come up. And you go see you go see the next available teller. You're not waiting for this specific person because your GPA wants to GP, sorry, wants to see Yeah, has a previous relationship with them. So this system actually has been used in some preliminary systems in Canada so far. So one example I can use is something uh, called the shoulder center, which I have some previous experience working with. Now the shoulder center was basically a group of shoulder specialist um, orthopedic surgeons. Now this group of surgeons worked with many GPs across Southern Eastern Ontario. Now what they would do is they would get with GPs to refer them instead of to a specific shoulder surgeon, to when they saw a patient with a shoulder related issue, they would send them directly to the shoulder center where they would essentially be put into this single entry model of surgeons. Now, this ended up saving tons of time. Firstly, unnecessary scans stopped happening because GPs didn't need to scan things multiple times because orthopedic surgeons who specialize in shoulder surgery have had thousands of surgeries in their life and they tend to understand what's going on a lot quicker than GPs. And by tend, I mean always. Now, multiple orthopedic surgeons also speeded up the process because if someone required surgery, they would go to the next available orthopedic surgeon, not a specific surgeon within that group. So, I mean, you wouldn't have, so say for example, if everyone, like you wouldn't have 10 people lining up to see Surgeon Joe and then only one person lining up to see Surgeon Jack just because Surgeon Jack just moved to the area from Nova Scotia. Exactly. It becomes something that actually helps both parties. It helps uh, the doctors have a consistent uh, um, group of care and it helps patients be seen faster. And what we found through Shoulder Center is that when people would go through our traditional model, having your shoulder surgery and recovery and checkups would take six to eight months just to get that surgery. In comparison, the shoulder center would do things in six to eight weeks. So from the point you brought it to your GP, you would have your surgery within six to eight weeks rather than six to eight months. Now that is a huge improvement, makes things more efficient and saves money for the government. And it improves clinical outcomes. I mean, I could imagine you living with that injury for six to eight months before getting, I mean, say for example, your orthopedic surgeon sees you today and then he can't schedule, schedule you in for six months, but you're gonna continue to use your shoulder for six months. And then now you're gonna go to him in six months, he's gonna rescan you and be like, oh crap, things have shifted or things have changed or your lesion has grown or whatever it is. And now we have to reevaluate surgical treatment and oh crap, you know what? That original three hour time slot that we booked for you is not enough. Yes. So we're either gonna cancel somebody else's operation to fit in your elective surgery or we're going to have to move you up again and familiarity of the surgeon to the patient is going to change too if you wait six months when your surgeon sees you the first time to when your surgeon sees you again to prep you for surgery a lot of things are going to be lost over those six months surgeons are just humans you know they're going to forget things too and they're going to have to become reacquainted with you rather than if you're in six to eight weeks they're going to know you they're going to understand your problem and they're going to get to it right away but this 
is a main problem, but it's not the only other problem. Yeah, I mean, going back to this this uh, topic of surgery, since we're here, um, the idea of ambulatory surgery. So this is kind of like the, the before I talk about ambulatory surgery, there's this big lack of free hospital beds for people to use during recovery from surgery from, from surgeries or in, and just in general. I mean, let's say for example, somebody comes in from the ED and um, they need a bed. So what's the administrator going to do? They're going to try and find them a bed. Now, let's say that the hospital is overflown and the only bed that's available is in one of the surgical wings. Now, there's N minus one surgical beds available now. What this means is unfortunately, somebody that was booked for elective surgery that was supposed to have that bed can no longer have elective surgery because now there's an emergency case using their bed. Now, as a result, unfortunately, their surgery gets pushed back however long the wait time is, what they might have to move to the end of the list or whatever it is. So the idea of ambulatory surgery is in cases where an operation doesn't require a huge recovery or whatever it is um, in terms of needing intense intense care in an ICU or whatever it is, you can just, if, if, if you can operate on somebody and discharge them the next day, send them home with whatever, um, like protocols, protocols, and whatever it is to allow them to recover and then have maybe see them in a couple of days as opposed to keep them in the in hospital overnight or for two nights or for three nights, you free up some of this, I guess, I don't want to call it unnecessary use of beds because... But it's more streamlined that way, right? Exactly. I mean, it's not saying it's unnecessary, but if things... If, if, a, if a patient is able or has next of kin that is able, obviously we're not kicking people out, but if they're able to be able to recover at home. And they prefer that, which a lot of patients I imagine would. Then help. we should just discharge them with the information that they need in order to still heal and recover effectively. And then they will be seen soon. So outside of this, um, another problem that Dr. David Erbach, and we're mentioning a lot of problems because he saw, but the final problem that he saw that could be improved in the Canadian healthcare system is activity-based funding, what he defined as activity-based funding. So historically, Canadian hospitals funded with global budgets, also known as hospitals get a certain budget and try to utilize um, and try to utilize it as best as they can to provide as many services as possible. So when budgets are strapped, hospitals want to reduce elective care to keep room for emergent, emergent care. Uh, Activity-based funding describes hospitals receiving funding for additional services that they provide. So basically, the incentives for hospitals to provide more elective surgery to get more funding compared to our current system that doesn't really have an incentive to do more surgery. It's fine doing more, more, sorry, more elective surgery. More elective surgery. So, I mean, these hospitals are incentivized. Of course, if, 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 if there's a constant flow through your emergency room, you're going to want to deal with them. You know what I mean? They, of, of course, emergencies take priority, but then that leaves a lot of elective surgeries on the back burner. And here, the idea here is to incentivize hospitals to prioritize both, make room for the emergencies because emergencies are emergencies. They need to be dealt with immediately. Exactly. But at the same time, give hospitals incentive to grow, to grow their research programs, to grow their infrastructure, to grow also, I mean, to, to, to make their healthcare centers world-class by doing these elective surgeries, because the government is going to incentivize them to do it. The more elective surgeries they do outside of emergent surgeries, the more funding they get. Kind of like 
I, I think you mentioned um, in, in the history section how early in, in the early Canadian healthcare system, the government incentive like gave 50 cents for every dollar spent. Yeah, the same idea where the government gives money for every extra elective surgery that they do over a certain quota. This increases productivity in the hospital. This makes patients happy because they have to wait less. And it provides innovations. Exactly. Within the system. So uh, that was the last one. Um, but the very important thing, the very important thing to note, because uh, we just gave you a lot of information, is that we need to improve uh, managing public expectations. We need to reduce inappropriate surgery and care. We need to develop a single entry model. We need to um, initiate ambulatory surgery models, and we need to increase our activity-based funding. So that brings us to the end of our long podcast. Yeah, I mean, um, if you are a follower, you may have noticed we haven't released a podcast in about uh, three weeks, and we wanted to get you it three weeks ago. Unfortunately, we had some personal uh, things going on. Nothing negative. I mean, birthdays and just uh, things going Work on. And yeah, COVID like also has really taken a turn for the worse these past couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. getting together has been a lot tougher. But um, on top of that, this topic. It's, it's a big topic. It's, it's not- a big topic. And it's tough to get into what our goal was, 40-ish minutes. I don't think we're going to hit that. I think we're going to go above that. Yep. Um, But you know what? Sorry, not sorry. This is something we're both passionate about, and it's not going to be the last time we uh, talk about the Canadian healthcare system and how we think it can improve. I know this is a huge information dump, but I hope that we were able to unofficially translate this in a way that you have enjoyed listening to. And uh, listen to us next week when we talk about something a little bit more niche. Yep. And uh, we just want to thank the real ones that actually made it to the end of this podcast. Yeah. The end had a lot of good information, you know. I bet you now know what the beverage model is. Yeah. Beverage, not beverage like a drink. Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, this is uh, Ihab and Hattie signing out.